You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. For those uh, who might be visiting, um, my name is uh, Peter Gatara, and I'm a member of uh, this church. Um, I'm originally from Kenya, so when you hear an accent, that's where that's from. But I have the privilege of bringing uh, God's word uh, this morning. I've got my family here with me, and uh, um, you know, it's just been a wonderful, um, wonderful, I guess, four season. Uh, I, I love the I love the four season. In Kenya, we don't have this four season. We only have like you know, rainy season and sunny season. So, being the United States with all four seasons is a it's a blessing. Um, we have been studying. Um, uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and 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 when summer came, we took we took some time off, and now we're back into the Book of Luke. And uh, today, I do have uh, the privilege of preaching from uh, Luke chapter nine, verses eighteen through twenty-seven. And um, if you have an English Bible, um, you'll notice that uh, the editors of our Bibles kind of give us a quick look. They give us these descriptive headings that kind of tell us what to expect from each passage. And in this passage, um, you know, we'll, we'll look at Peter's confession of the Messiah. Uh, we'll look at Jesus predicting his death and suffering. Uh, we'll also look at, uh, you know, what Jesus means by taking up one's cross. And, and I believe these themes are relevant to us today as we walk with Jesus. And that's why I have titled my message as uh, Following Jesus. Um, I wrestled with many other titles um, uh, for this passage, but I felt that uh, um, just reflecting on this passage um, in relating to how we walk with Jesus or the pursuit of Jesus made more sense to me. So let's, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our most gracious Father, I pray this morning that you will bless the reading and exposition of your word. Father, may you speak to us through this passage so that we may grow in our faith and bring you glory in our lives. In Jesus' name, I pray. You know, most recently, I uh, had to go into the driver's license office to renew my ID, and I was actually looking forward to it. Um, this picture here doesn't look like me now, um, and also the weight, uh, yeah, that kind of needs to be modified on there, you know, because I took this five years ago. Um, so I was excited when I went to the office and they asked me whether I needed to update any information on the ID. And I did. I, I, I did. I think I left the weight as it is. Um, my eyes are still the same color, um, you know, but uh, my, my address changed. So I had to update my address. But I think what I was looking forward to most was actually getting the real ID, uh, R-E-A-L. If you've seen... Uh, if you've been to the airports or to these driver license offices, they start saying, they just tell it kind of see advertisement that everybody needs to have a real ID. If you want to fly or cross any U.S. border or go to any federal, um, you know, federal building, uh, like, a, like a base, you know, like a, you know, if you want to go to a military base, you would need to have a real ID. So I was kind of disappointed that I did not leave that office with a real ID. So, but I kind of went back home and I said, why, why don't, why did, I, why did they give me a real ID? I really wanted a real ID. But then uh, when I went to the government website, I, I read about it. 
And, and the first thing the website tells you that the real ID is not a physical card. It is actually a law. It is a federal law that was passed back in 2018. Uh, the federal government was looking for a way to combat terrorists, so they gave this mandate. All states have to issue their citizens a real ID or an, an ID card that is compatible with the law. So, well, I didn't feel too bad because I figured, well, if they've put that on the website, it's not an actual card. So, well, there's a lot of people like me who do not know that. So I just started thinking about my uh, uh, passage here today, and I thought, wait a minute. As Jesus is going to get into this conversation with his disciples, um, he's going to talk about, a lot about his identity. And, and I figured that Jesus maybe represents that law. He is the, the benchmark for every believer as to, as to the qualifications that we need uh, to follow him or uh, to get to know him. So this moment, as we're going to see in our passage today, um, is, a, is a real ID moment. Many people had been following Christ. There was a lot of people interested in joining this entourage. But Jesus, at the middle of his ministry, kind of stopped at this place called Caesarea Philippi. And he wanted to just clarify some things about who he is and what he has done and what it takes to follow him. And that's the direction we'll be going on with this passage. You know, because I truly believe, as believers... I think one of the reasons why we are complacent and lackluster in following Jesus is because we don't always fully understand who Jesus is. We only know bits and pieces about Jesus. But there is a lot more that the Bible says in depth about the person of Christ and about the passion of Christ. And I have to say that I... I have seen dramatic um, just zeal grow within me as I was looking at this passage. And I hope today your faith is going to be inspired as we look at the identity of the Messiah. We're going to go a little bit deeper than, than maybe we've done in the past on the identity of Jesus. Then we'll look at his passion. And then what it would take for us to faithfully pursue him. Here's our passage. I'll be reading from Luke uh, chapter 9 verse 18 to 27. The version I'm using is the Holman Christian Bible. Uh, what's up there might be the ESV. Uh, so if you have your, you know, like your mobile phone, you can look at the different versions on there. While he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, Still others, that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, 
and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What is man benefited if he gains the whole world yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth. There are some there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You know, what I find most intriguing about this moment of Jesus and his disciples is the fact that Luke tells us that Jesus was praying in private. You know, he doesn't tell us whether the disciples were praying. Maybe they did not need to pray because they had the Messiah there with them. Um, but Luke indicates that only Jesus himself was praying. And this is not the first time in Luke where we see Jesus praying privately before either he does something huge or reveals a great truth. For example, in Luke chapter 6, you know, Luke tells us that Jesus was praying alone all night on a mountain before later that morning. He caught together all these wannabe disciples, and he chose 12 of them. So that was a big moment. And so he had spent the whole night praying. And I think Luke just kind of wants to let the people reading his story to know that, you know, prayer is kind of important, especially before we make major decisions in life. It might be good to pray. But right after the prayer, you know, Jesus gathers the 12, and he asks them, what the people on the street were saying about him. And if you look at uh, the, you know, last, last Sunday we heard about Jesus feeding the 5,000. So this moment, the disciples had just wrapped up a huge event where Jesus had miraculously fed 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. So these people must have been saying something about Jesus. Surely they had something to say. All the time, Jesus sent his disciples to the villages. If you look at the beginning of chapter 9, you know, Jesus empowered his disciples and he sent them out to the villages. He gave them the power to heal the sick and cast out demons. Surely, those people must have been saying something about who Jesus is. And the reality is, as you read the Gospel of Luke, right before this moment, Jesus asked this question, Everybody else had been asking the question, who is Jesus? Even the disciples. You remember the time they thought they were drowning? Jesus was taking a nap in the boat. You know, when he quieted the waves and the winds, they, they asked each other, who, who can this be? He commands even the winds and the waves and they obey him. I mean, they, be, they had been with him, but still they hadn't figured him out yet. You'd be surprised to know that the only group that was never confused about who Jesus was were the demons. They never once asked who Jesus was. They always asked him what he was about to do to them. Because they knew. They knew who he was. Satan, of course, had instructed them about who Jesus is. Satan had tried to bring Jesus down when he tempted him. So the demons in hell knew. Who Jesus was. So they had an idea. 
But everybody else came down to four conclusions. Well, he either has to be John the Baptist. He has to be Elijah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet. Or one of the old prophets has come back to life. Those were the four prevailing views of what the people thought Jesus was. Even Herod, that fox, as Jesus called him, he had already ordered John the Baptist to die. He was perplexed to hear that everybody on the street was saying that Jesus was John the Baptist. But this question that Jesus set forth before the disciples, I think it was just a, it was just a, a pretext. It was just a precursor to the next question. And this is where we explore the person of Christ. Look with me what he says in verse 20. But you, and those who study Greek, they emphasize that you is actually plural. In English, sometimes we can't tell whether that, that noun is, is, is representing a, a group of people or a single person. But in this case, he says, but you, you all, who do you say that I am? And I might ask the same question this morning. Who do we say Jesus is? Or who do we tell other people Jesus is? How would we introduce Jesus? How would we introduce Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? The first thing we see about this identity of the person of Christ is that he is God's Messiah. And that word Messiah found mostly in the Old Testament means anointed one. And then we come over to the New Testament. Instead of them using the word Messiah, now they call him Christ. So in essence, Peter was saying, you are God's Christ, Christos. It's the same word. It's an anointed one. And the Jewish people had an expectation of an anointed king or leader who would come and deliver them from the Roman oppression. So Peter was number one. He did not hesitate. You are God's Messiah. But I think the weight of his answer is more, this is not the full answer. That's why we have a three, you know, four Gospels. We call them the Synoptic Gospels because you could go to other Gospels and kind of see how other Gospel writers understood that moment. Look at Matthew and if you, uh, you it's probably not up there, but I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 16. In verse 16. And I'm going to camp on this part of this story in Matthew. Because there's more details I want us to look at. So, this is how Matthew, a Jew, writing to other Jewish people, recorded Peter's answer. Simon Peter answered in verse 16. You are the Messiah. The son of the living God. You are the anointed one. But you are the son of the living God. So Jesus is not only God's Messiah, but also God's son. So Peter was recognizing Jesus not only as that from uh, anointed servant who was coming, but he was also recognizing Jesus as God's son. His answer was affirming the full humanity of Jesus. Well, at the same time, affirming the full deity of Jesus all in the same person. And this person is Jesus. Jesus, you, fully man, 
and fully God all in one person. I have to tell you, this is deep stuff here. Because the church, in church history, there has been controversies over the identity of the person of Jesus. Some people denied his full humanity. Others denied his full deity. They said, how can he be man and God at the same time? Oh, no, he has to be mixed up. He has to be something else. And, and I think that's why as the church of Jesus Christ, we've got to identify Jesus fully as who he is. Not just a man. Yes, a man. Because we know how he came into this world. Miraculously conceived by Mary. So if you would have seen him, he was, he was like any other person. Except that he didn't sin. But here is this other identity that was not all that clear. And that's the third thing, the third thing we see about Jesus. Jesus is not only God's Messiah, God's Son, but He is God's revelation. God's revelation. I love what Jesus told Peter. The mo and I believe Peter was speaking on behalf of the other disciples, but specifically he said, verse 17 of Matthew 16, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. This is not the kind of revelation one would have by having, say, degrees in fishing studies. You know, like Peter, you, you, are, not that, you are not all that brilliant to figure this stuff out. You know, God in his grace... And in his mercy, introduced to us this God-man. And only God can convince us about this God-man. Only God can allow our hearts to accept that truth. But we cannot accept half-hearted truths. We cannot deny the, 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 the full humanity of Jesus and accept just the deity part of it. We cannot just accept the deity and deny the other. No. We've got to accept God's revelation. Jesus as the full man and full God all in one person. You know, a survey, a recent survey conducted by Lifeway Research Group right around um, the COVID year 2020, it found out that a majority of the general U.S. population rejects the deity of Christ. But now, almost a third of evangelicals. Evangelicals are people like you and I. People who believe that, you know, Jesus is the Savior. A third, 30% of evangelicals agree that Jesus was merely a great teacher, but he was not God. Oh, yeah, sure, he was a great teacher. Yeah, that's what many people would tell you if you ask them to define Jesus. Yeah, he was a great guy. He was a, he was a great rabbi. But I don't think he was God. He was created. And 65% of evangelicals agree that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. That's fallacy. That's not what the Bible teaches. And these are evangelicals. You know, this is extremely demoralizing. I mean, considering the fact that here in the United States, we have some of the best and greatest teachers of the Bible. In the U.S. 
But yet, a majority of evangelicals do not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. And, and this goes to confirm exactly what Jesus told Peter. The true knowledge and understanding of Jesus as the God-man cannot be obtained through academic prowess or some kind of innate knowledge, you know, like someone was born with some kind of understanding. No! It is God himself who brings his revelation. So Jesus, the person of Christ that we worship, he is the Messiah. He is God's holy son, and he is God's revelation. But the, the interesting thing is that right after this revelation, Jesus warned and instructed his disciples not to tell no one that he was the Messiah. It's kind of a counterintuitive. Why? Like you would expect Jesus to, you know, let loose and let the disciples go and tell everybody. But he says, hold on. You know, time is coming when you will tell everybody that I'm the Messiah. Even Jesus himself, he kind of withheld from publicly saying that he is the Messiah. Because the people, the Jewish people's expectation of the Messiah was a military guy. It was a guy who would come and deliver them from the Roman oppression. Yeah. So Jesus was careful. You know, at one point, Jesus was preaching and people were feeling all nice and good. And they wanted to kind of hold him back and say, no, 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 don't go to other places to preach. You know, they wanted to have Jesus for themselves. That's the kind of thing that was going on. That's why Jesus said, just hold on. Hold on. But if you look at verse 21 in Matthew, the Bible says that from then on, that moment, after this revelation, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, from the chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. As you can imagine, this announcement did not go very well. Now, Luke does not record what happened when Jesus says that, but Matthew does, right? This is where we see the passion. Jesus predicts his passion. And this is not the first time he's doing it. He will do two other times. He will predict his death to his disciples. But every time they're kind of clueless. They don't quite understand why he's talking about death. And we can see it. Look what happened in verse 22. Then Peter, the same disciple who had this amazing revelation, he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus, I know you are the Messiah and all, but that is not how it's going to go down. I ain't going to let those people in Jerusalem touch you or come close to you. I mean, if Peter, a disciple, was confused about why Jesus was going to die in Jerusalem, can you imagine the people on the street? They were not going to let the person who was doing miracles and, uh, and uh, providing free bread be killed? Absolutely not. And you can see why Jesus kept it as a secret. It's called the Theologians call this the messianic secret. It's for that purpose. Just hold back. But Jesus knew and saw exactly what was happening. That serpent of all, the devil, 
who had aggressively tempted him a while back in Luke chapter 4, he had warmed his way into the disciples' group and he was now opposing Jesus through Peter. And the Bible says, right after the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he would look for every opportunity, every opportunity he could get to make sure that Jesus doesn't go to the cross. And even in the temptation, if you remember the story, the devil wants to give Jesus glory by bypassing the cross. Yeah, if you only worship me, I will give you, I will give you everything. Oh, yeah, even when Herod ordered the kids to be killed. Yeah, sure, if we can eliminate Jesus now, he doesn't have to go to the cross. And here's another opportunity. Where Satan has warmed himself into this disciple. And he is opposing God's work. He is objecting to Jesus going to the cross. It is no surprise then that Later, after Peter was converted, and, and Jesus, by the way, rebukes Peter back. You know, he, he kind of looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns but man's. That was arrogance. It was pride. It was a moment of the flesh. You know, the devil doesn't care how spiritual, how spiritual we think we are. He will look for every and any opportunity to bring us down. Greater many and, uh, men and women of God have fallen from grace. Because Satan is not a respect of persons. And so later Peter wants and tells everybody who has a ear. My brothers and sisters, be sober. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a rolling lion, looking for anyone he can devour. That's the work of Satan. He knows his time is short, and so he has to try everything he can to make sure that believers like you and I stumble on our faith. And this kind of presses the point we're talking about here. Satan not only specializes in stealing God's word, because he will steal God's word. And Jesus taught that from the parable of the sower. But he will also cause us to misunderstand the word of God. It's the, the delight of Satan when people don't understand fully the deity of Jesus Christ. He loves false prophecy. But Jesus, his passion, why did he have to die? Why did he have to suffer? It was the will of God. This suffering servant of God. It was the will of God that Jesus got through suffering on our behalf. And there is nowhere that is more clear in the Bible than in Isaiah chapter 52. Verse 13 and the whole of Isaiah chapter 53. If you've never read Isaiah 52 and 53. That is a great prophetic passage speaking about the Messiah and what would happen to him. And as one theologian has put it, this prophecy about the Messiah's suffering and death is known as the summit of Old Testament prophetic literature. Few passages in the Bible can rival the clarity on the suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. 
And in that prophecy, we see, you know, Jesus, his suffering and rejection were predicted hundreds of years ago. You know, the suffering servant, he would be beaten so much by the soldiers that many were, were appalled at his appearance. You know, he was so disfigured. He did not look like a man anymore. And I think Mel Gibson kind of captured that in his movie, The Passion of the Christ. Such a graphic movie. But in reality, the Romans were no joke. They were brutal. And yes, Jesus was brutalized. But, but we also see Jesus, the, the passion of the Christ. He was a suffering servant, but also his atoning death. Really, really, why did Jesus have to die? The essence, this is the core and essence of Christianity. Isaiah 53, 4 to 6 says that the Messiah would bear our infirmities and sin in his body. But he was pierced because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned onto our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. We cannot believe in a Christ who did not go to the cross. The cross is an offense. Many people will not accept Christianity. They do not like the thought of blood. It was a bloody, messy cross. And that's why Jesus said, I must go. It is for us that he went. And he had to go. There was nothing that was going to stop him. And the worst part of it all is that we concluded that his death was a, was a result of his sins. We say, oh, no, no, no. He died because he sinned. Again, Satan would have us believe that lie. But it is God who allowed Jesus to be pierced by the nails on the cross. He allowed him to be slapped and bruised by the soldiers. To bear the weight of the cross. God allowed that punishment that was due to us. Carried out in Jesus. Those wounds and stripes that Jesus, that Pilate's men administered on Jesus was for, because of our sin. Verse 6 in Isaiah is a central verse in this narrative. And this point cannot be understated. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have individually sinned against God. And what we deserve is punishment for our sins. But God, being rich in mercy, made Jesus who had no sin to be seen for us. And this is what we call the atonement of Christ. It's a great theological term, the atonement of Christ. Someone else took up our sin. And I love, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Because none of us can do any good to please God. I mean, our first parents tried, but they failed. And so God stepped in and he came up with a plan. And he said, here's my plan. I'm going to send my Messiah. I'm going to send my son. And Jesus knew when he was on earth, he knew his mission was to die. He knew it. It was not a surprise. And so this is God's amazing plan. That's how we are reconciled with God. 
This is why we place our faith and trust in Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus, that punishment was my punishment, but thank you for taking it. And now, Jesus, from this day forward, I will do my best to obey you and follow you. And then we see Jesus as the risen Lord. He did not remain in the grave. You know, Jesus did not object to God's plan. He instead submitted to his will. But he did not even complain. You know, he did not call 10,000 angels to rescue him. Yet he submitted to the will of the Father. And as soon as he finished his work of atonement, God exalted him. And today, Jesus, there is no other name given to men by which we can be saved except the name of Jesus. That's why people hate Christianity. Because we say, well, everybody is invited. But there is this is what you need to do. We believe that Jesus is the way. What do you say about this gospel? What do you think about Jesus so far? Is there something that has come to your mind that maybe you never thought about Jesus? We've seen him as up, the person, the passion. And thirdly, as we kind of finish our message here is, is how do we pursue him? In light of what he has done, in light of who he is, how can we pursue him faithfully? He says from verse 24, and I'm reading from Matthew. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come down with his angels and in the glory of his Father. And then he will reward each according to what he has done. That's Matthew's version. This invitation to pursue Jesus calls for three things. Kind of a requirements. What's required of us? Number one, it requires unselfish devotion to Christ. You know. Jesus says we have to deny self. You know, we, we are self-centered people. We love ourselves. Even when we deny ourselves, you know, I can deny myself a cookie so that I can, be in a, and I can look a certain way. You know, like we, we, we are selfish. Even when we deny ourselves, we only deny ourselves to benefit ourselves. But Jesus is going beyond that and saying, no, no, no. We have to overcome this idol of self-centeredness. And selfish devotion to Christ also involves taking up our cross daily. That may, not mean a, you know, that may not make a whole of sense for most of us. But I'm sure it doesn't mean that wearing a necklace with a cross on it, that is not what it means to unselfishly follow Christ. The cross in the time of Jesus, it wasn't cool, it wasn't hip as it is today. You know, the cross was reserved for common criminals who were forced to carry the cross beam on their way to crucifixion. And as one author stated, cross-bearing was not an established Jewish metaphor, but the figure was appropriate in Roman-occupied Palestine. It brought to mind the sight of a condemned man who was forced to demonstrate his submission to Rome. 
by carrying part of his cross through the city to his place of execution. Therefore, to take up one's cross was to demonstrate publicly one's submission and obedience to the authority of Christ. Take up our cross daily. Jesus bore his own cross. And to support his argument, we see our two paradoxical statements here. He says a person who wants to preserve his life. There are people who hear about Christianity. They hear it's not easy. And they choose to, well, I don't think I want to be part of it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to chill. And Jesus says the person who wants to preserve his life, he will lose it. He or she will not be saved to eternal life. But then there are people, a person who loses his life for the sake of Jesus, will save it. He or she will be saved to eternal life. The other thing Jesus talks about is, uh, first is about unselfish devotion, but also to be uncorrupted by the world. Here is a rhetorical question. Jesus asked, for what good or profit is it for a person to gain the whole world, all earthly pleasures and possessions, and yet forfeit or suffer the loss of his soul and not gain in eternal life with God? The expected answer is, it is no good. There is nothing that we can give to compensate for what God has done for us. And finally, as we conclude this message, Jesus talks about not being ashamed of him. A person who is ashamed of Jesus and his words in this filthy generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. I don't know about you this morning. I hope that uh, you've learned or picked up something in my message. I know I've said a lot, uh, but I hope there's something in this message that captivated your heart, that captured your heart, especially if you've never trusted your life with Jesus Christ. The gospel is available. His grace is available. His forgiveness is available. And you can see me after the message. We can pray for you to have your sins forgiven by Christ. Okay? And if you're a member of the body of Christ, you know, maybe struggling with complacency, which we all do. We all deal with complacency, with lacklusterness. We kind of, you know, are selfish with our time. We don't want to give up our time and our energy, our resources, our treasures to Jesus. You know, we kind of struggle with those things. I hope you've heard Jesus say, you know, that we need to deny self and follow him. Let us pray. Father, I'm praying from Psalm 45, which is by the sons of Korah. It says, my heart is moved by the noble theme of the gospel. Jesus, you are the most handsome of men. Grace flows from your lips. God has blessed you forever. Your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Jesus, come and rule and reign in our hearts. In your name I pray. Amen. And for, for those of us who have trusted Jesus, we are commanded that whenever we come together, that we observe the Lord's table until he comes. This is how we commemorate 